How much more of that could you take? Just standing up here not saying anything. Better yet, how long until you elbowed your neighbor and tweeted something? Something's wrong with this guy. How much longer could we just sit in silence? Especially when there's an expectation that I'm supposed to get up here and start talking. And that if I would have just got up here and just stood here for five minutes and said nothing. What does that do? It makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? We are terrified of silence. We hate it so much. We fill our lives with constant noise. When you wake up in the morning, what's the first thing you do? Some folks turn on the TV. And they're just listening to the news or whatever's on in the background. When you get in your car, what's the first thing you do? Turn on the radio. Some folks can't even go to bed at night without a box fan in the hallway. Right? It's not about the air so much, but it's the sound, it's the noise. We need the noise. And if you think about our lives currently, we stay connected to our social media feeds. Sharing and posting and venting and commenting and following and arguing sometimes all day long. But we're not actually speaking to anyone when we do that. We're not actually saying anything with our mouths. It's silent, but we're not silent. And I think we do this to project who it is that we want everyone else to see. <clears throat> I think to some degree we're, we're scared to death that if I get quiet and you just have to examine me while I'm quiet, you're going to see me. You're going to see who I really am. And so what we do is we, we immediately begin to fill silence with noise so that we can say, well, this is who I want you to see. You ever go to lunch with somebody and you sit there for a second and there's that uncomfortable silence? Why do you think it's called uncomfortable? Because you're sitting there and they're looking at you and you're looking at them and you're like, they're about to find something wrong with me. I better say something quick. And so we fill the silence. A lot of times, <clears throat> speakers, preachers, I, I'm guilty of it. We'll get up here and we'll fumble for our next sentence and what do we do? Uh, uh, uh. And we'll awe ourselves to death because we're afraid to just let there be a space between the words. It's like we have to constantly keep talking because that silence, that space is so uncomfortable. And so when you take away the connection, when you take away the noise... And you're just left there with silence. Who are you actually left there with? When it's just you, and there's no noise, you're just left there with you. Just yourself and your thoughts. Now that can be terrifying. That's terrifying for me anyway. And the reason I think is because there's stuff that we press down deep. Right? There's stuff that we have pressed down so deep and now that stuff has an opportunity to speak because no one else is. And we don't really want to hear what it has to say. We sometimes call this our conscience. But sometimes it's way more than that. Maybe it's, it's way deeper than that. 
And if we stay connected, if we stay noisy, if we stay busy, then we believe that we are somebody, right, in a sense. But then getting quiet will assure us that we already are somebody. And it's not usually the person that I was projecting to others. It's the real me. The me that I have to come to grips with and look face to face in the mirror. And what's funny is that when we look in the mirror, most often we look right past ourselves. We don't really look ourselves in the eyes in the mirror. When you look at yourself in the mirror, you're looking at your hair, you're looking at your teeth, you're looking at your face. But how often do you just take a good long look at this guy? At this girl? It's rare. It's rare because it's the version of ourselves that we know we need to work on. But we neglect to. We just push it down further. And so that might be the hurt person. Or that might be the angry person or the sad person. Most often it could be the depressed person that we don't want to admit is depressed. The lonely person. No one wants to admit that they're lonely, but we know what that feels like. The sinner. The sinner that we all are. The person that only you and God know. The person you never really show anyone else because of shame and guilt and the consequences that we perceive will take place because we know how we think about it. And so what do we do? We don't want to hear that guy. Just push him down. Push him down deep. And that's the, the person that's, that's the, the storm within. You know, we often talk about storms of life and we use that metaphor and it, and it sounds really neat, but that truly, when we're at odds with ourselves, whether it's pain or depression or loneliness or whatever, when we are at odds with ourselves, we don't want to deal with that, and so we push it down. And the further you push something down, the more you compress something, the worse it gets. And it's a storm. It truly is a storm within yourself. It's that brokenhearted secret self that no one really knows except God and you. And he knows. It's just like the seven churches Jesus addresses in Revelation 2 and 3. He says, I know your works. I know your deeds. I know your reputation. And you look great on the outside, but on the inside, you're all messed up. So he knows. Right? I think sometimes we think we can fool him too. And so it's in the silence that we not only hear ourselves, but we're also able to hear God's word in contrast to it. And so it scares us to death. Silence terrifies us. It scares us to death. But I want to suggest to you this morning that there's a need for it. There's a necessity to silence. And we're going to see that in a couple passages here. I think there's a spiritual discipline in silence that we often ignore. And yet the Bible speaks about it a fair amount. But it is a spiritual discipline nonetheless. A discipline to just be quiet. To just be silent. To, to be okay in that uncomfortable moment until I'm not uncomfortable anymore. God invites us to listen to him. And if there's anything I know, and any parent knows, that to be silent 
is hard. And when you're telling your children, listen to me, what do you require of them but to be silent? Why do you want them to be quiet? So they can hear you. They can hear you. So God invites us to listen to him, not only the silent here, but those who are not silent. And, and, and so you can't listen while you're talking. That's one of the things that drives me nuts in my teenage class that I teach at home is that whenever I'm trying to talk and, and, and someone's trying to talk while I'm talking, you can't hear me. And sometimes it's me that needs to be silent and let them speak so I can hear what the issue is. But the point is, is while two people are talking, somebody's not listening. And usually it's both people. And this is why the psalmist writes to us, be still and know on God. We love that passage. Right? There's a, there's, a, there's a calm that comes with that passage. There's a, a peace that comes with that passage. And I think it's designed that way. But think about what it is that he's really saying. God is saying, be still. Stop moving. Stop talking. Stop doing. And just get quiet for a minute. How often do we tell our kids that? Would you stop what you're doing and just look at me? If my kids look at me, then I know that they're hearing me. But they got to stop what they're doing to make that happen. We want their undivided attention. In 1 Kings chapter 19, there's a very difficult time in Israel's history in this. And we could spend a lot of time talking about that in and of itself this morning. But God sought out Elijah. And Elijah was a discouraged prophet. But he sought him out to teach him something new. And so in verse 11, put the translation up here so we can see it. In verse 11, this is what he says. He says, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And the Lord was about to pass by. Now there was a great wind so strong that it was splitting mountains, breaking rocks and pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle, and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And then there came a voice that said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Scholars have struggled on how to explain God speaking in a sound of sheer silence. And so they have translated the Hebrew phrase, a still small voice, in many translations. Or a gentle whisper, depending on which one that you like. But this is a direct quote from the, from the original language. And so it says that there was only silence there. The sound of sheer silence. And that's where Elijah met God, in the silence. He could hear God, not in the earthquake, not in the fire, but in silence. Not in the chaos, not in the noise. When he got quiet, when everything got quiet, he could finally then hear God. And I suggest to you that so will we. Scripture teaches us that God is not only in the wind, he's not only in the earthquake, he's not in the fire, but he's in that silence. And so silence is actually a mode of activity. 
It's not just refraining from speaking or, or undue noise, but it's a special and focused form of attentiveness to God when it's used in this context. And so it's activity. To be still is an activity. To be silent is an activity. It takes discipline. It takes self-control. It takes determination. Because we get so uncomfortable. We don't want to be in silence. We just feel this need to say something. And God says, be still. And know that we can know something from being still. We can know something from being silent. And so here are some things I want us to take away from that this morning. I don't know that I'm going to go 45 minutes, Clay. So we might, we might have to sing a song or something. But I know this. I think this is important. To the things that we've talked about this week. In understanding our desperation for God and in realizing the pure motivation of it. Which we see in his love for us from before the foundations. And then to know that life is short. And that so that our time here, knowing that we should be desperate for him, knowing that we should be properly motivated because he loved us first, that we should use that time to do the things that we are able to do, that there are so many things that we're limited that we can't do, that we should be exercising the things that we are. And so yesterday we talked about living our best life. And understanding that living our best life, to have the life abundant, means that we need to avail ourselves to the opportunities that, is get, that he's given us in repentance and renewal. And I'll suggest to you that renewal won't happen until we get silent. We can do all these other things, and we can do them and feel good about it because they're active and they're, 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 they're it's, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a work, it, it's, it's something that keeps us focused, and yet renewal is something that takes place inside. And renewal won't be, begin to happen until I get quiet so that I can hear God. Not that he's going to speak to me out of some miraculous place, but that I can go to his word and I can be still and I can know something. And so the first thing I'll suggest to you this morning in the process of renewing ourselves, the necessity for silence, the first aspect of that is that silence centers us. Silence centers us. It grounds us. It brings back to us the basics of ourselves and to our senses. When we come home from work, after you've sat in traffic, now I'm not sure what traffic's like down here, but in Birmingham, Highway 280 is the worst. It's not as bad as Atlanta, but it's, it's bad for Birmingham. And you sit in that for... Longer than you think it ought to take you to get home. Longer than you know that it takes you to get home. And you've got people who clearly can't drive. You're, it, it seems like you're surrounded by everyone else who cannot drive. And I'm the only one with any sense. Is how it seems sometimes. And yet they're probably thinking the same thing about me. But nonetheless, I get home and I'm frustrated. I'm irritated. And I need just a moment I walk in the door, and here comes my wife. I'm glad to see her, because she wants to kiss me, and I like that. She wants to hug me and tell me that she hopes I had a good day, when knowing I probably didn't. 
here come my kids and I love them and I want to, to love on them too. And then everyone starts, she wants to tell me about all the things that went wrong in her day. My kids are telling me about all the money they need for such and such. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, y'all give me a minute. A minute of what? Quiet. I need a minute of silence. I need y'all to just leave me alone for a minute. Let me, let me get myself together. I need to get centered to regroup and get my head right so that I don't take my frustrations out on my family. And when people used to use maps instead of GPS, I don't know. Some of y'all might remember that. I remember we would go on trips and my dad would get the map out, you know, and he was never going to admit that we were lost or he didn't know where he was going, but he would get the map out and he'd turn the radio down. And he'd look at all of us and everybody be quiet. I'm trying to read the map. And I'm like, do you read with your ears? I didn't understand that as, as, as a 10-year-old kid. Why do you need me to be quiet so you can look at something? I know now. I need you to be quiet so I can focus. Right? There's something about all of the senses that work together. And for him to know where we're going and, 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 and see where, where we're headed, he needed me to be quiet. And I didn't get that. I do now. But think about it like this also. Before we take the Lord's Supper, we are commended to examine ourselves in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, And we're commanded to do that so that we don't eat and drink judgment upon ourselves. But Psalm 4, verses 4 and 5, give me a little insight into that. Psalm 4, verse 4 says, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Notice the qualifier for making right sacrifices. It's by not being angry and sinning. And so when we take the Lord's Supper and we're commanded to examine ourselves, I have to do that so that I'm offering the sacrifice correctly. That I'm offering sacrifices rightly. And David tells us in Psalm 4, to offer right sacrifices, you've got to be not angry. Not sinning, but by trusting the Lord. And what the mechanism is for that, he says, is being silent. Be silent. Pondering your own hearts. Be angry. Don't sin. So I can offer right sacrifices. Putting my trust in the Lord. Being silent. Comparing and contrasting God and his precepts to, to making corrections before I offer anything to him amiss. Before I offer anything to him incorrectly i got to get myself right. Well, the best, or the right as I can be. And so, knowing then that silence centers us, helps get us in a right frame of thought to where that I can deal with my family, or whether I can deal with my employees, or deal with my neighbors, to deal with the issues that I have to deal with at church with different people, I gotta first get quiet so that I can center myself and reground myself, and then I can offer right advice. I can offer right admonition. I can offer right worship. And so silence centers us, and the second thing that it does, 
after it centers us, it strengthens us. There are multiple passages throughout the Bible, and in particular the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes writings, that admonish us strongly to be silent rather than wordy. Proverbs 10.8 says, The wise of heart, now think about that, the wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. The wise of heart will listen and not talk is the implication there. The wise of heart will listen to what's being said and take it in. But the babbling fool will come to ruin. The one who insists on talking while you're talking, not hearing a word. Proverbs 17, 28. says, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise when he closes his lips. He's deemed intelligent. So even if you're not, there's something that seems very wise and intelligent about not saying anything sometimes. And I think that's an admonition that we could all take to our social media feeds. We could all take that into the workplace. That just because you can say something don't mean that you should. I could drive with my feet. Don't mean it's a good idea. And so I think we have to keep in mind just because we can say something, or even if we have the authority to say something, maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we shouldn't. Ecclesiastes 5, verses 1 through 3, Solomon says this. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. And I think I can stop right there, and that says enough. There's something about guarding our steps or, or being aware of our steps before we go to the house of God. But notice what he says. To draw near, to listen, is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know what they're do, that, that they're doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you're on the earth. And I think that's important to notice. There's a, there's a distinction of role here. God's in heaven and you're on the earth. God is above and we're below. And so I'm going to guard my steps when I go to the house of God. I'm going to draw near and listen. And that's better than offering some foolish sacrifice that I don't know what I'm doing. That I'm not going to be rash and hasty and utter some vain, vain words and vain repetition to the Lord. Because I recognize that he's in heaven and I'm not. He's God and I'm not. I think sometimes we think we can just offer God whatever we want to, and he ought to accept it. Well, because it's from my heart. But it's not what he asked for. Therefore, Solomon says, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business. And what I love about the word business is if you break it down phonetically, which I had to learn to read but phonetically because I'm dyslexic. It says busyness. With much busyness. A dream comes with much busyness. And a fool's voice with many words. Wow. Sometimes we think just because we can, we should. And what Solomon tells us here is that we shouldn't. These verses, among others, are to be considered from the books of wisdom. 
And it's not only wisdom that we learn when we practice these, but it's self-control. We learn self-control. We, we learn that I don't necessarily have to say something even though I've, I've got something to say. And I, I can ask myself, is it helpful? Or, is it, or am I just being busy? Is it helpful or am I just being hasty and rash? Is it helpful or am I just going to muddy the waters here? You know the best way to unmuddy muddy waters? Leave them alone. We have the hardest time just leaving things alone sometimes. Now, I'm not suggesting that there are times when things need to be messed with. But when the waters are, are muddy, what we understand here is that use some self-control. Be silent. To be submissive to his will. Ouch, that's the one, isn't it? To be submissive to his will and not ours. We want what we want. And God says, I'm in heaven and you're on earth. You do what I say. And so we have to be submissive to his will and know then that he has promised us that he will be our strength. When we're weak, Exodus 14, 14, and although the context here is, 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 is a little different, what did he say to the children of Israel? The Lord will fight for you. And Moses told them, you only have to be silent. That principle still applies. Although we're not in the great exodus, we're not the children of Israel. The principle of that is still true. The Lord will fight for us. We just got to be quiet. I don't have to answer every argument that's on social media that disagrees with my sensibilities. I don't have to pick fights with people I disagree with politically. I don't have to look for opportunities to be offended. I can just be still and know that God will fight for me. I think sometimes we feel like we need to fight for him. Think about that for a second. Again, he's God in heaven and we're here on the earth. You think I need to protect him? I need him to protect me. Should we defend the truth? Absolutely. But, but God doesn't need me to fight for him. Okay, if I fight for him, it's because I know it's the right thing to do. But not because he needs me to. God needs nothing I've got. Rather, I need everything that he has. And so silence then attests to our resolve. Silence attests to our resolve to endure. To endure difficulties as well as self-reflection amid times of anger. When we're angry, self-control, man, that's the one. When I'm angry, just to look back in for a second, look at myself. And exercise some self-control and be silent. And not say something that I shouldn't say. Not say something that I'm going to have to apologize for. Not say something I'm going to regret. Isaiah 40 verse 31 says, They who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. I know we know this passage. And it says they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Do you see what Isaiah is saying here? Waiting on the Lord. When I wait on the Lord. What does that mean to wait on him? To sit. Or does it mean to work? To wait on him means that I am busy 
doing his work. And what happens is when I wait, he renews my strength. And when my strength is renewed, I'll, I'll mount up with wings like eagles. I'll run and I won't be weary. I'll, I'll walk and I won't faint. That he will strengthen me in my silence. That I can truly walk tall by speaking softly. Yet carry with us a big stick. That's how the saying goes. And the third thing is that silence then fills us. If it first centers us and brings us back to who we are, and then it strengthens us because we realize that it is God that fights for us, well then, something must take place with that strength. And as I said again, we want to often talk and fill the gaps and speak Maybe where we shouldn't speak. And we do these things because the silence makes us uncomfortable. But what is it that we're trying to escape there? We're trying to fill something. But what is it that really we're looking for is to be filled? When I first stood up here and I said nothing, I only stood here 30 seconds. How long did it feel? I mean, I could see it. Some of y'all were like wiggling. Worry. Worry is what comes from that uncomfortableness. Curiosity maybe, and then, and then maybe a little anxiety. What's he about to say? But worry, ultimately, is what comes. If I'd have stood here five minutes, y'all would have been real worried. Because there was nothing to fill the silence, and the expectation that there would be something to fill the silence was already set. But how many times has your life not gone as expected? That's what happens. We set expectations, and then they don't go that way. They're not, they're not met. The expectations are not met. And when that happens, it leaves us scrambling in the wake of it. I've heard it said that nature abhors a vacuum, or nature hates a vacuum. And that, what that means is that when something is missing in someone's life, the vacuum is created by the absence of that. But then it gets filled with something. That if there is something missing in my life, something is absolutely going to fill it. This is how boys with absentee fathers or abusive fathers can grow up into atheists. Do you know that 88% of all atheists are men? And do you know that number is so high? Because they were either missing their own father or he was abusive. Ninety-one percent of addicts, all addicts, men and women, same thing. They're missing a parent. They're missing a role model. They're missing a relationship. Sometimes it's a grandparent. Sometimes it's a brother or sister. But nonetheless, they're missing something, and so they seek to fill that space with something else. Seeking validation and acceptance or a sense of self-importance from some other place. This is how a daughter who grows up with an absentee father or an abusive father ends up 
in a strip club. She's in there looking for her father. Not literally, but metaphorically. She's looking for the male attention she lost. She's in there looking for some sort of sense of control that she thinks she has in that place. And yet, she has no control in that place. The point is, is that life will fill the space that's created when something is missing. In the same way many of us abhor the quiet. We hate the quiet and we struggle with silence because we realize something is missing. Not only does nature hate a vacuum, but so does our soul. And if we don't fill ourselves with God, something else is going to fill our souls. Write it down. If we don't fill ourselves with God, something else will fill us. And by extension, if we don't teach our children to love the Lord, the world will teach them to love something else. When God calls us to be still, he's not asking us to do nothing. He's not asking us to focus on nothing. You remember what he says to focus on? He said, be still and know that I am God. We can know he is God because he's made his power visible to us in creation. In Romans chapter 1 verse 20, he tells us that we can know, that we can look in nature and we can see his hand in all of it. I can know he's God because I can walk outside and look. I can look at the human body in all of its complexities and just how the human eye works and know that he's God. I can look at a woman who's carrying a baby and see the miracle of life taking place. And when that child is born, I can know that he's God. I can see humble people who think they're not worth it come to the Lord on his terms to come home and know that when they die to themselves on baptism and are risen a new creature that I can know he's God. We can know God because we have the capacity to know love. And to show love. And to know that God is love. We looked at that extensively the other night in 1 John 4. That we know God. And we know that God is love because he loved us first. And that people will know that we love God because we love each other. People can know God because we love. Because he loved us. And we can know God because he gave us his word. In Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 it says, Long ago and many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers. By the prophets. But in these last days he's spoken to us by his son. Whom he appointed the heir of all things. Through whom he has created the world. He is the radius of glory of God. And the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe. By the word of his power. Underline that. Highlight it. Draw circles around it. Point arrows at it. Do whatever you got to do. But know this verse. He upholds the universe. How? Because he says so. By the word of his power, it says. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
We can know God because he gave us his word and his word holds everything up in existence. In the most simplest of terms, he says, exist, and it does. And so I can know him. I can know him because of his word. I can know him because of his power. I can know him because of his love. And we can know God because we can pray to him and know that he hears us. Psalm 34, verses 17 through 19. David says, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears. But it's more than just hearing. He says he delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. Many afflictions are those of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. All of them. He delivers us out of all of our struggles when we call out to him. I can look at Revelation chapter 4 and 5 and see John doing the best he can to describe the indescribable. As he's viewing into heaven and he's seeing the prayer room where God sits. And our prayers are described as being poured into golden bowls. Golden showing the value of them. That he enjoys, he, he respects, he's thankful for our prayers. And it says they go before him as a sweet smelling aroma. So we know that he enjoys our prayers. I think sometimes we don't pray because we think we're bothering him. And Revelation tells me he loves it. He loves us to pray. And so when David tells me that I can cry for help and he's going to hear me, and that he's near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed spirit, he knows that the afflictions of the righteous are many, and that he delivers them out of all of them, then I can know God because I can pray and he can hear me. We can know when we are still also. We can know when we are still and we hear all of these words if we will just be silent. Psalm 29, verses 7 through 11. David says, The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. And the Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people. These things all began with the voice of the Lord, it says. And in Habakkuk 2, verse 20 says, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let therefore all the earth be silent before him. All the earth. That's us. Let all the earth be silent before him. So, when the storm rages, and we don't want to get quiet because we know that it's going to come up, that all the things that I have pushed down now have a voice in the silence, I can let the storm happen. I can let it come up. Because he's going to take care of it. He's going to restore me. He's going to strengthen me. He's going to fill me. He's going to center me. I can remember my son when he was probably two. He'd woken up from a nightmare. He was scared to death. 
and he came running, and he jumped into my lap, and he was just shaking. And I just held him, and he's wiggling and moving and fighting me. And I'm like, son, it's okay, it's okay. And within a few minutes, the storm calmed. And within a few more minutes, he was asleep. Sometimes God stills the storm for his child. And sometimes he stills the storm in his child. The question is, is which child will we be? Which one will we be? Will we be silent and listen? Will we be still and know? Or will we let the noise of the world keep us comfortable and content in the noise? Because that's what we do. We fill our silence with noise so that we're not uncomfortable. But God says be silent. And so there's a necessity in that. There's a necessity of being silent, of being quiet, so that it can center us and strengthen us and fill us. Will we be still? Will we be silent? Will we allow God to calm the storm in us and for us? God is here. We're two, three, or more gathered. He's with his people. And if he's here, then all the more reason for us to be silent and be still. We've got one more lesson left this morning. And I'm hoping that the conclusion of all this will help bring this all together to make a complete thought for you. My whole point this week has been to help us understand that it's not easy being a Christian. I think sometimes we believe that, well, once I become a Christian, my life is going to be great. And in fact, our life gets even harder. We're surrounded by the world and its desires. And as I said yesterday, the world just wants to hurt you. The world just wants to destroy you. Jesus said the world is like a thief that wants to come in and steal and destroy but if we go by him, the door, we find safety in pasture. And so to begin our thought process this morning, I want us to see the necessity of silence. That the process of renewal takes place when we first get still and trust him. And so I look forward to the next hour of worship with you. I know typically Bible class is not the time to offer an invitation, but it's still open. You don't have to sit here and wait for the invitation later. We can do it right now. If you need prayers, you can pray. If you need to be baptized, you can be baptized. I don't think anyone here is going to withhold water from you. And so, it's not a formal invitation, but it's still open. And that if you need something, I pray you'll let it be known. We may not get to the, to the next sermon. We may not get to the next ten minutes. If you have a need, let it be known. We're not going to stand and sing, obviously. But let it be known, nonetheless. Thank you all for your attention this morning. That's all I've got to say for now. We'll look forward to the next message.
Well, I almost went 45 minutes. Yeah, it was close. It was good. 